Part eight of the Praise of Folly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. The Praise of Folly by Desiderius Erasmus. Translated by John Wilson. Part eight. But they have heard from somebody, I know not whom, that the beginning of a speech should be sober and grave, and at least given to noise. And therefore they begin theirs at that rate they can scarce hear themselves, as if it were not matter whether any one understood them. They have learned somewhere that to move the affections a louder voice is requisite, whereupon they that otherwise would speak like a mouse in a cheese start out of a sudden into a downright fury, even there, too, where there's the least need of it. A man would swear they were past the power of hellebore, so little do they consider where it is they run out. Again, because they have heard that as a speech comes up to something, a man should press it more earnestly, they, however they begin, use a strange contention of voice in every part, though the matter itself be never so flat, and end in that manner as if they'd run themselves out of breath. Lastly, they have learned that among rhetoricians there is some mention of laughter, and therefore they study to prick in a jest here and there. But, O oh Venus, so void of wit, and so little to the purpose, that it may be truly called an ass's playing on the harp. And sometimes also they use somewhat of a sting, but so nevertheless that they rather tickle than wound, nor do they ever more truly flatter than when they would seem to use the greatest freedom of speech. Lastly, such is their whole action that a man would swear they had learned it from our common tumblers, though yet they come short of them in every respect. However, they are both so like that no man will dispute but that either these learned their rhetoric from them, or they theirs from these. And yet they light on some that, when they hear them, conceive they hear very Demosthenes and Cicero's of which sort chiefly are our merchants and women, whose ears only they endeavour to please, because as to the first, if they stroke them handsomely, some part or other of their ill-gotten goods is wont to fall to their share. And the women, though for many other things they favour this order, this is not the least, that they commit to their breasts whatever discontents they have against their husbands. And now, I conceive, you see how much this kind of people are beholding to me, that with their petty ceremonies, ridiculous trifles, and noise, exercise a kind of tyranny among mankind, believing themselves very Pauls and Antonies. But I willingly give over these stage-players that are such ingrateful dissemblers of the curtsies I have done them, and such impudent pretenders to religion which they haven't. And now I have a mind to give some small touches of princes and courts, of whom I am had in reverence, above board and, as it becomes gentlemen, frankly. And truly, if they had the least proportion of sound judgment, what life were most unpleasant than theirs, or so much to be avoided? For whoever did but truly weigh with himself how great a burden lies upon his shoulders that would truly discharge the duty of a prince, he would not think it worth his while to make his way to a crown by perjury and parasite he would consider that he that takes a sceptre in his hand should manage the public, not his private, interest, study nothing but the common good, and not in the least go contrary to those laws whereof himself is both the author and exactor, that he is to take an account of the good or evil administration of all his magistrates and subordinate officers, that, though he is but one, all men's eyes are upon him, and in his power it is, either like a good planet, to give life and safety to mankind by his harmless influence, or like a fatal comet to send mischief and destruction, that the vices of other men are not alike felt, 
nor so generally communicated, and that a prince stands in that place that is least deviation from the rule of honesty and honour, reaches farther than himself, and opens a gap to many men's ruin. Besides, that the fortune of princes has many things attending it that are but too apt to train them out of the way, as pleasure, liberty, flattery, excess, for which cause he should the more diligently endeavour and set a watch over himself, lest perhaps he be led aside and fail in his duty. Lastly, to say nothing of treasons, ill-will, and such other mischiefs he is in jeopardy of, that that true king is over his head, who in a short time will call him to account for every the least trespass, and that so much the more severely, by how much more mighty was the empire committed to his charge. These and the like, if a prince should duly weigh, and weigh it he would if he were wise, he would neither be able to sleep, nor take any hearty repast. But now, by my courtesy, they leave all this care to the gods, and are only taken up with themselves, not admitting any one to their ears, but such as know how to speak pleasant things, and not trouble them with business. They believe they have discharged all the duty of a prince if they hunt every day, keep a stable of fine horse, sell dignities and commanderies, and invent new ways of draining the citizens' purses, and bringing it into their own exchequer but under such dainty new-found names that though the thing be most unjust in itself, it carries yet some phase of equity, adding to this some little sweetenings that whatever happens they may be secure of the common people. And now suppose someone, such as they sometimes are, a man ignorant of laws, little less than an enemy to the public good, and minding nothing but his own, given up to pleasure, a hater of learning, liberty, and justice, studying nothing less than the public safety, but measuring everything by his own will and profit, and then put on him a golden chain that declares the accord of all virtues linked one to another, a crown set with diamonds that should put him in mind how he ought to excel all others in heroic virtues, besides a sceptre, the emblem of justice and an untainted heart, and lastly a purple robe, a badge of that charity he owes the commonwealth, all which, if a prince should compare them with his own life, he would, I believe, be clearly ashamed of his bravery, and be afraid lest some or other gibing expounder turn all this tragical furniture into a ridiculous laughing-stock. And as to the court lords, what should I mention them? Then most of whom, though, there be nothing more indebted, more servile, more witless, more contemptible, yet they would seem as they were the most excellent of all others. And yet, in this only thing, no men more modest, in that they are contented to wear about them gold, jewels, purple, and those other marks of virtue and wisdom. But for the study of the things themselves, they remit it to others, thinking it happiness enough for them that they can call the king master, have learned the cringe a la mode, know when and where to use those titles of your grace, my lord, your magnificence, in a word that they are past all shame and can flatter pleasantly. For these are the arts that speak a man truly noble and an exact courtier. But if you look into their manner of life, you'll find them mere sots, as debauched as Penelope's wooers. You know the other part of the verse, which the echo will better tell you than I can. They sleep till noon, and have their mercenary Levite come to their bedside, where he chops over his matins before they are half up. Then to breakfast, which is scarce done, but dinner stays for them. From thence they go to dice, tables, cards, or entertain themselves with jesters, fools, gambles, and horse-tricks. In the meantime they have one or two beverages, and then supper, and after that a banquet, 
and twere well, by Jupiter, there were no more than one. And in this manner do their hours, days, months, years, age, slide away without the least irksomeness. Nay, I have sometimes gone away many inches fatter to see them speak big words, while each of the ladies believes herself so much nearer to the gods by how much the longer train she trails after her, while one nobleman edges out another that he may get the nearer to Jupiter himself, and every one of them pleases himself the more by how much more massive is the chain he swags on his shoulders, as if he meant to show his strength as well as his wealth. Nor are princes by themselves in their manner of life, since popes, cardinals, and bishops have so diligently followed their steps that they've almost got the start of them. For if any of them would consider what their albi should put them in mind of, to wit a blameless life, what is meant by their forked mitres, whose each point is held in by the same knot, will suppose it a perfect knowledge of the Old and New Testaments? What those gloves on their hands, but a sincere administration of the sacraments, and free from all touch of worldly business? what their crozier, but a careful looking after the flock, committed to their care, what the cross borne before them, but victory over all earthly affections. These, I say, and many of the like kind, should any one truly consider, would he not live a sad and troublesome life? Whereas now they do well enough while they feed themselves only, and for the care of their flock either put it over to Christ, or lay it all on their suffragans, as they call them, or some poor vigors nor do they so much as remember their name, or what the word bishop signifies, to wit labour, care, and trouble. But in wrecking to gather money they truly act the part of bishops, and herein acquit themselves to be no blind seers. In like manner cardinals, if they thought themselves the successors of the apostles, they would likewise imagine that the same things the other did are required of them and that they are not lords, but dispensers of spiritual things, of which they must shortly give an exact account. But if they also would a little philosophize on their habit, and think with themselves what's the meaning of their linen rochet, is it not a remarkable and singular integrity of life? What that inner purple? Is it not an earnest and fervent love of God? Or what that outward, whose loose plates and long train fall round his reverence's mule, and are large enough to cover a camel? Is it not charity that spreads itself so wide to the succour of all men? That is, to instruct, exhort, comfort, reprehend, admonish, compose wars, resist wicked princes, and willingly expend not only their wealth, but their very lives for the flock of Christ? Though yet what need at all of wealth to them that supply the room of the poor apostles? These things, I say, did they but duly consider, they would not be so ambitious of that dignity or if they were, they would willingly leave it and live a laborious, careful life, such as was that of the ancient apostles. And for popes, that supply the place of Christ, if they should endeavour to imitate his life, to wit his poverty, labour, doctrine, cross, and contempt of life, or should they consider what the name Pope, that is Father, or Holiness, imports, who would live more disconsolate than themselves? Or who would purchase that chair with all his substance, or defended, so purchased, with swords, poisons, and all force imaginable. So great a profit would the excess of wisdom deprive him of. Wisdom, did I say? Nay, the least corn of that salt which Christ speaks of. So much wealth, so much honour, so much riches, so many victories, so many offices, so many dispensations, 
so much tribute, so many pardons, such horses, such mules, such guards, and so much pleasure would it lose them. You see how much I have comprehended in a little, instead of which it would bring in watchings, fastings, tears, prayers, sermons, good endeavours, sighs, and a thousand the like troublesome exercises. Nor is this least considerable. So many scribes, so many copying clerks, so many notaries, so many advocates, so many promoters, so many secretaries, so many muleteers, so many grooms, so many bankers. In short, that vast multitude of men that overcharged the Roman sea, I mistook, I meant honour, might beg their bread. A most inhuman and economical thing, and more to be execrated, that those great princes of the church and true lights of the world should be reduced to a staff and a wallet. Whereas now, if there be anything that requires their pains, they leave that to Peter and Paul that have leisure enough. But if there be anything of honour or pleasure, they take that to themselves. By which means it is, yet by my courtesy, that scarce any kind of men live more voluptuously or with less trouble as believing that Christ will be well enough pleased if in their mystical and almost mimical pontificality, ceremonies, titles of holiness and the like, and blessing and cursing, they play the parts of bishops. To work miracles is old and antiquated, and not in fashion now. To instruct the people, troublesome. To interpret the scripture, pedantic. To pray, a sign one has little else to do. To shed tears, silly and womanish. To be poor, base, to be vanquished, dishonourable, and little becoming him that scarce admits even kings to kiss his slipper, and lastly, to die uncouth, and to be stretched on a cross, infamous. Theirs are only those weapons and sweet blessings which Paul mentions, and of these truly they are bountiful enough, as interdictions, hangings, heavy burdens, reproofs, anathemas, executions in effigy, and that terrible thunderbolt of excommunication, with the very sight of which they sink men's souls beneath the bottom of hell, which yet these most holy fathers in Christ and his vicars hurl with more fierceness against none than against such as, by the instigation of the devil, attempt to lessen or rob them of Peter's patrimony. When, though those words in the gospel, we have left all and followed thee, were his yet they call his patrimony lands, cities, tribute, imposts, riches, for which, being inflamed with the love of Christ, they contend with fire and sword, and not without loss of much Christian blood, and believe they have then most apostolically defended the church, the spouse of Christ, when the enemy, as they call them, are valiantly routed, as if the church had any deadlier enemies than wicked prelates, who not only suffer Christ to run out of request, for want of preaching him, but hinder his spreading by their multitudes of laws merely contrived for their own profit, corrupt him by their forced expositions, and murder him by the evil example of their pestilent life. Nay, further, whereas the Church of Christ was founded in blood, confirmed by blood, and augmented by blood, now, as if Christ, who after his wonted manner defends his people, were lost, they govern all by the sword and whereas war is so savage a thing that it rather befits beasts than men, so outrageous that the very poets feigned it came from the Furies, so pestilent that it corrupts all men's manners, so unjust that it is best executed by the worst of men, so wicked that it has no agreement with Christ, 
and yet, omitting all the other, they make this their only business. Here you'll see decrepit old fellows acting the parts of young men, neither troubled at their costs, nor wearied with their labours, nor discouraged at anything, so they may have the liberty of turning laws, religion, peace, and all things else quite topsy-turvy. Nor are they destitute of their learned flatterers that call that palpable madness zeal, piety, and valour, having found out a new way by which a man may kill his brother without the least breach of that charity which, by the command of Christ, one Christian owes another. And here, in troth, I am a little at a stand, whether the ecclesiastical German electors gave them this example, or rather took it from them, who, laying aside their habit, benedictions, and all the like ceremonies, so act the part of commanders that they think it a mean thing, and least beseeming a bishop, to show the least courage to Godward, unless it be in a battle. And as to the common herd of priests, they account it a crime to degenerate from the sanctity of their prelates. Haida! How soldier-like they bustle about the jus divinum of titles, and how quick-sighted they are to pick the least thing out of the writings of the ancients, wherewith they may fright the common people, and convince them, if possible, that more than a tenth is due. Yet in the meantime it least comes in their heads how many things are everywhere extant concerning that duty which they owe the people. Nor does their shorn crown in the least admonish them that a priest should be free from all worldly desires and think of nothing but heavenly things. Whereas, on the contrary, these jolly fellows say they have sufficiently discharged their offices if they but anyhow mumble over a few odd prayers, which, so help me, Hercules, I wonder if any god either hear or understand, since they do neither themselves, especially when they thunder them out in that manner they are wont. But this they have in common with those of the heathens, that they are vigilant enough to the harvest of their profit, nor is there any of them that is not better read in those laws than the scripture. Whereas if there be anything burdensome, they prudently lay that on other men's shoulders, and shift it from one to the other, as men toss a ball from hand to hand, following herein the example of lay princes who commit the government of their kingdoms to their grand ministers, and they again to others, and leave all study of piety to the common people. In like manner the common people put it over to those they call ecclesiastics, as if themselves were no part of the church, or that their vow in baptism had lost its obligation. Again, the priests that call themselves secular, as if they were initiated to the world, not to Christ, lay the burden on the regulars, the regulars on the monks, the monks that have more liberty on those that have less, and all of them on the mendicants, the mendicants on the Carthusians, among whom, if anywhere, this piety lies buried, but yet so close that scarce any one can perceive it. In like manner, the popes, the most diligent of all others in gathering in the harvest of money, refer all their apostolical work to the bishops, the bishops to the parsons, the parsons to the vicars, the vicars to their brother mendicants, and they again throw back the care of the flock on those that take the wool. But it is not my business to sift too narrowly the lives of prelates and priests, for fear I seem to have intended rather a satire than an oration, and be thought to tax good princes while I praise the bad. And therefore what I slightly taught before has been to no other end but that it might appear that there is no man can live pleasantly unless he be initiated to my rights and have me propitious to him. For how can it be otherwise when fortune, the great directors of all human affairs, and myself, are so all one 
that she was always an enemy to those wise men, and on the contrary so favourable to fools and careless fellows that all things hit luckily to them. You have heard of that Timotheus, the most fortunate general of the Athenians, of whom came that proverb, his net caught fish though he were asleep, and that the owl flies, whereas these others hit properly, wise man born in the fourth month, and again he rides Sejanus's his horse, and gold of Toulouse, signifying thereby the extremity of ill fortune. But I forbear the further threading of proverbs, lest I seem to have pilfered my friend Erasmus, adages. Fortune loves those that have least wit and most confidence, and such as like that saying of Caesar, the die is thrown. But wisdom makes man bashful, which is the reason that those wise men have so little to do, unless it be with poverty, hunger, and chimney-corners, that they live such neglected, unknown, and hated lives, whereas fools abound in money, have the chief commands in the commonwealth, and in a word flourish every way. For if it be happiness to please princes, and to be conversant among those golden and diamond gods, what is more unprofitable than wisdom, or what is it these kind of men have, may more justly be censured? If wealth is to be got, how little good at it is that merchant like to do, if following the precepts of wisdom, he should boggle at perjury, or being taken in a lie, blush, or in the least regard the sad scruples of those wise men touching rapine and usury. Again, if a man sue for honours or church preferments, an ass or wild ox shall sooner get them than a wise man. If a man's in love with a young wench, none of the least humours in this comedy, they are wholly addicted to fools, and are afraid of a wise man, and fly him as they would a scorpion. Lastly, whoever intend to live merry and frolic, shut their doors against wise men, and admit anything sooner. In brief, go whither you will, among prelates, princes, judges, magistrates, friends, enemies, from highest to lowest, and you'll find all things done by money, which, as a wise man condemns it, so it takes a special care not to come near him. What shall I say? There is no measure or end of my praises, and yet tis fit my oration have an end, and therefore I'll even break off. And yet, before I do it, twill not be amiss if I briefly show you that there has not been wanting even great authors that have made me famous, both by their writings and actions, lest perhaps otherwise I may seem to have foolishly pleased myself only, or that the lawyers charge me that I have proved nothing. After their example, therefore, will I allege my proofs, that is to say, nothing to the point. End of Part 8